Well, good morning, Mount Horeb. Good to see y'all. Shout out for the worship choir this morning, right? So good. So grateful. And I, uh, my name is Grace Marie. If I don't know you, I'm the worship arts director here and just so excited to be a part of carrying on this series that we've been on in, in the book of Acts and very excited about some of the things that I've studied this last couple of weeks to be able to share with y'all this morning. Before we get started, I need to ask a question. I need a show of hands for how many of you have gotten involved with the social crazy movement of pickleball. Pickleball, wow, not as many, I am shocked. I thought the hands would have gone up all over the room. Okay, so you may be asking what I asked for several years. Like, I don't, what is pickleball? Do you play with pickles? Do you eat pickles like while you're playing? I'm confused what it is. I'm not gonna go through everything this morning what it is. It's, it's similar to tennis and ping pong all together. It's very, you know, it's a special thing. But I judged it for a few years. You know, Alex Kilman would, would always try to get me to go and play with him and his I'm like, I don't, that sounds weird. But guess what? I have gotten all in to the pickleball movement, okay? Which means I bought a, bought a paddle and then bought a fancier paddle and then bought some new fancy shoes, some new outfit, a fancy little bag, a little fancy water bottle. I'm like, I am all in. And so we have a group here that plays several times a week because we're just like, we're just all into it. And I'm proud to say that I actually got Pastor Jeff out on the court uh, one evening. And here, here's proof of that right here. There he is, there he is, look at him, looking all fierce, a threat on the court. I also wanna let you know that he has not been back after that one time, okay? He has not been back, and he said something about having to take ibuprofen for the next week following that, and he is still on the fence if he wants to come back again. I will say what I've learned a lot about pickleball the past couple months is how little movement I have since I've hit my 40s. Like, I'm like, wow. So I've also been on the, on the ibuprofen uh, train as well. But when it comes to pickleball, really the bottom line in strategy is that you can you try to get the right power on the spin on the ball and you got to be in the right positions and you got to have a certain strategy with your partner about when you're moving up to the kitchen line and when you're moving back. I mean, it's like a whole thing. If it sounds nerdy, it's because it is. And I am all about it. But ultimately, you want to be the one to win the point. And the way you do that is that you want to be the greatest threat to the other team whether that's through your strategies, through your skills, it all comes together, and that's how you are the greatest threat against the other team. Typically, the strategy of the team playing against me is just to grace me every time and we'll win the point. And I'm like, I'm offended by that. You know, I play with, what is Bryce? He's in his 20s. I play with Bryce. I'm like, that's not fair. You know, I can't help I'm a little bit older. But I've learned a lot about movement. And here's the thing when it comes to threats that we face. None of us want to face a threat. None of us want someone coming up with a strategy against you. It's, it, it hurts. It's offensive. And this is true in pickleball, but it's also true in life. In life, we don't want people coming at us or strategizing to take us down. In the last several weeks, we have been in the book of Acts, and we have seen God work in incredible ways to move the church forward, the first church, the early church in the book of Acts. And they're growing and they're moving forward and they're strong and they're all over the city of Jerusalem telling people about the resurrected Jesus. But guess what? There's a group of people who do not like that. And they're gonna do everything they can to be a threat against this move of God. And so as God's movement is pushing forward, they're coming up with ways to slow it down and push it back and to be the greatest threat that they can be against these believers. 
So what we're going to do today is we are going to kind of continue the story, but also back up a little bit and see a little bit of the framework that's going on behind the scenes with this movement of God's people. We're going to be in the book of Acts, of course. Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to start. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 5, you can go on your phone or you could follow with us on the screen. But I want us to give us a little bit of context of where we are as we jump in here in Acts 5. Basically what's been happening is Peter and the apostles have been telling people about Jesus all over the city and people are trying to stop it, like I said. And as these threats are coming against them, they've been in prison, they've gotten out of prison and basically the religious leaders come to them and are like, all right, no more, you have to stop. And this is the response of, of Peter. He says, we can't stop. We have to keep telling people. And once he declared that, this is the scene that sets up Acts chapter 5, verse 33. Let me read this for us. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thetis who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. Love that phrase, the whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him but he was killed, he was killed too, and all of his followers were scattered. So, my advice, my advice is leave these men alone, let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. You see, what we learn right here as we begin to look at threats towards the church that a movement of God may meet resistance but cannot be stopped. A true movement of God where the spirit of God is at work may get pressure, may get resistance, may get lots of reasons to be like, whoa, 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 what's going on? But you cannot stop it. And this leader reminds him of that. They've seen this happen before. I love how it lays out, hey, hey guys, guys, calm down. We've seen this, remember this guy? He had a bunch of followers, it fizzled out. I remember this person, he got, he got killed. It was probably a riot, it got a little crazy. It, it, it's good, you know, it, it's not gonna come to anything if it's really nothing. But if it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. So the leader's like, hey, let's slow down with the whole killing thing. Let's let this thing play out. Let's see what really comes of this movement. Now, when I was in 10th grade, I, I seriously tried to start a movement. This is true. Me and about four of my friends, we were really offended that the, the private school that we went to did not have a girls' soccer team. And we were like, this is not fair. And I wasn't even good at soccer. I have absolutely no foot-eye coordination whatsoever. And I was like, but for some reason, I was like, we are going to do this thing. So we, we found out the best way to do it after we talked was we're gonna show up to the guys' tryout day and we're gonna march on the field with our little outfits on and we got there and so we walked, we came up that day to try out for the guys' soccer team and the coach, you know, walks over to us 
And a few of our guy friends were on the team. They were like, you shouldn't do this. I'm like, oh, we can. Because we found out it's not in the handbook that girls can't try out. So we felt like we had them tricked. So we show up. We're like, listen, we're here to try for the soccer team. They're like, yeah, you can't. This is no girls. Go home. We're like, you can't tell us to go home because it's not in the handbook. And we're here, and we feel like we're being discriminated against if we're not allowed to try out for the soccer team. So we had this whole strategy, and we were going back and forth. We thought, we're, we're going to get on the soccer team with all the boys. This is going to be so much fun. And, you know, after a few minutes, and I was kind of embarrassing ourselves, and he tells us, listen, if you don't go home, we're just going to expel you. Like, this is against the rules. And we're like, okay, see ya. And we just left. We just left. All that to say, point being, some movements make it, and some don't even get off the ground, okay? It didn't even get off the ground. We tried our best. But some movements do make it when you really, really believe in what you're going for. In the book, Forgotten God, Francis Chan says this quote, which I think is so powerful. He says, when I read the book of Acts, I see the church as an unstoppable force. The church was powerful and spreading like wildfire, not because of clever planning, but by a movement of the spirit. Riots, torture, poverty, any other type of persecution couldn't stop it. Isn't that the type of church movement that we all long to be a part of? You see, these Christians in Acts, if we could just wrap our brain around how powerful this is, they were willing to face whatever threats came their way because they had witnessed something so powerful They had experienced something so powerful in their salvation through Jesus, they could not stop telling people about it. This is what it says in the next couple verses following what we just read in verse 40. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and they had them flogged or beaten. And then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. You see, God's movement may be met with difficulties, troubles, hardships, threats, But those things can never stop what God intends to do through his people. Because those who are his people have experienced something that they can't stop telling about. Now, in the next couple chapters, things things really do take a turn. They take a turn. And we've learned a lot about it um, in, in a few weeks prior. But I think one of the best ways to describe what happens in Acts 6 and 7 is this painting by Rembrandt. It's a famous painting from 1625, a Rembrandt painting called The Stoning of Stephen. You may have seen this before. He painted this at age 19, his first painting in 1625. And the famous work of art paints the picture of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, right there in the middle. The first person killed for believing in Jesus and spreading that news. But in the background, if you look close, in the background in the back, you see another really key figure that he painted in. And this was Saul of Tarsus with the cloaks in his lap as he watched the stoning of Stephen. Now, if you were here last week, Pastor Jeff did an incredible job talking about this man, Saul, who was really overseeing this persecution and killing of Stephen. 
about what happens in his life in the chapters after and how God radically changes him. And he's the Apostle Paul that we read all about through the New Testament. But something significant happens after this scene that we just saw when Saul is there and, the, and Stephen is killed. We'll pick it up in Acts 8, verse 1 through 3. It says this. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. The phrase is so vivid, right? A great wave of persecution began that day. The death of Stephen, it ignited a spark that really turned into a wildfire against the Christians during this day. I mean, the scene painted is Paul, uh, Saul is going house to house. He's dragging people out of their homes. He's throwing them into prison. The believers were being scattered outside of Jerusalem, which was like their home base. And all of a sudden you have believers running for their life in Judea and Samaria, all these other cities is where they end up. More on that later, because that's actually really important. And I bet the persecutors thought, okay, we're gonna put pressure on these Christians. We're gonna put pressure they're gonna scatter, they're gonna be all over the region. It's gonna, the whole thing's gonna fizzle out now. We've done our job, the whole thing is going to fizzle out. But what actually happens? Let's look at this, the very next verse. Verse four says, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. I'm gonna read that again. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. You see, this was a defining moment. Persecution defined the church. It did not destroy it. Persecution defined the church rather than destroyed the church. It was a moment for people to say, am I really all in here? So wait a minute, wait a minute. It was all cute to see what we were doing a little holy huddle in Jerusalem. But am I, am I really, am I really all in? Am I really gonna believe this? Am I really committed? I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of intense. This would have been a where the rubber meets the road moment, a getting down to the nitty gritty moment, a get out of the kitchen if you can't handle the heat moment. No pickleball joke intended. If you know, you know. This would have been a truly defining moment for these believers who have said, yes, I'm a part of the church. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Now, over the years, you know, lots of churches have used lots of different strategies to try to recruit people or volunteers or whatever to come to their church. They're, and one of the most interesting ways to me has been the church sign. You know, we don't do it anymore. And I'm not complaining about it, but the little church signs, people will pass by and they'll be like a cutesy saying or like an inspirational thing. Oh, that's cute. It's kind of a way to be like, hey, come check out our church, you know? I don't know if it works for some people, but here, here are a few that I think are pretty interesting that have stood out to me that I've seen. What's missing from this CH blank CH? You are church, you get that? What's missing from this CH blank CH? Yeah, thank you, but um, 
That's a good one. Not that good. All right, here's some more. Here's, there's better ones coming. Sin burn is prevented by sunscreen, S-O-N, sun. Hey? Wow, y'all are not impressed. Y'all are a hard crowd. Nine o'clock was like, yes. I'm not done. How about this one? These are real church signs, by the way. I didn't make these up. Having trouble sleeping? Try one of our sermons. Okay, hey, the senior pastor did not approve that. I can tell you right now. Jeff would be like, take that down, okay? How about this one? We are not Dairy Queen, but we have great Sundays. That's like, yeah, that's like a church pickup line. Don't go there. Like, that is weird. Something is going on there that you need to stay very far away from. It's good, but it's weird. Tweet others as you would like to be tweeted. Ooh, like, wow, that's kind of cheesy, but good. God expects spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. I'm like, holler, yes, okay. I'm gonna go to that church. But here's my favorite, keeping it simple. Too hot to keep changing the sign. Sin bad, Jesus good, details inside. That's good, that's good. There's been all kinds of ways that people have tried to get people like, come check out our church. Now, I was thinking about this this past week. What in the world kind of strategy or clever sayings or marketing would the early church have sat around and been like, oh, we gotta come up with something to get people connected or wanna come to check out our church or a cute little saying. I mean, this would, the persecution would have hardly been a recruiting tool, you would think. Possible death, possible prison, running from your life, having to leave your family and friends potentially behind. But the reality is that God had done something so powerful in their lives that they could not help but continue on and to stay faithful. They could not help but to stay faithful to what God had done in their life. And that in and of itself was a testimony to everybody around them. Maybe their slogan would have been, we have found something to live for, something worth dying for. And that alone made people curious, what is happening? What is this movement really about? You see, the mission moves forward, not because the way is easy, but because the message is worth it. The mission moves forward, not because the way is easy or convenient or a really good option, or I guess we could do something like that on a Sunday, that's fine. It's because they really believed the message was so worth it. And maybe we need to ask ourselves today, how willing are we to even be inconvenienced for being a follower of Jesus? We do not face persecution in the same way that many people are across the, the globe. But for us, how many of us are willing to just be inconvenienced? If your connection to a church was bad for your business, would you still come? Living here in the Southeast, typically it is a, it's a benefit when people are like, Oh, this is, he's a Christian man, he goes to church, he runs his business, that's usually positive. What happens when the day comes where it's not? It's like, ooh, ooh, that company, that guy, he goes to a church, oh, those people. What if your association with Christianity wasn't going to get you the position or get you the promotion, would you still claim Christ? What if you knew you wouldn't get the scholarship that you'd been wanting to get if you put down that you'd been really involved with some Christian clubs in your high school? What if whew, there was no tax break? Would you still financially and sacrificially give to the church and the work of God? 
If you are being ridiculed, the only one on the team, the only one in the office, the only one in the family, the only one in the friend group, would you still faithfully follow Jesus and claim him as Lord of your life? Do you believe that the message would be so worth it even if the way forward becomes increasingly difficult? Because here's the truth. I believe it will become increasingly difficult in our day and age to stand up for Christ and claim him as Lord. There have been countless examples of people who have died for their faith throughout, throughout history died for the Christian faith. And some of us have a hard time even living for it. But there have been people who've been willing to die for it. I think of who we've been talking about here this morning, the Apostle Peter. Eventually, in the year 64 AD, he was actually killed under the Roman emperor. And he was crucified, and he asked them to crucify him upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Savior was. I think about... William Tyndale, who in 1536 was executed and burned at the stake. Do you know what his crime was? Translating the Bible into English. He felt so passionate about God's word being translated for the English people that he was willing to be burned at the stake for this faith. And aren't we all grateful as we hold our scriptures here today? I think about some of our partners that we work with in, in our missions department. I met with Janice last week and I said, tell me, tell me a little bit about some of the people that we partner with that are working with the persecuted church, people who are having to choose life or death when it comes to their faith. She told me a story about our partners in Nepal through Frontier Missions. And she actually said that they have passed a law in Nepal that if you share your faith and you're caught sharing it three years in prison, it's illegal to share your faith there now three years in prison. And if you actually convert someone, six years in prison. So she went on this trip and she, there were all these young believers and she's thinking like, this, they're like giving up their life if they're gonna keep on. And they were on this big walk and they were talking together. And it's like, I say, somebody's probably gonna back out. Like none of them. They were like, no, we're gonna keep being faithful. We're gonna keep telling people about Jesus. We're gonna keep serving in the church because we believe this is what God has called us to do. And he's changed my life and I wanna see other people's lives changed. I think about Sudan and the genocide that's happening there in Southern Sudan from the Northern uh, radicals that are trying to take out all the Christians in the Southern area. We partner with a group called Persecution Project, and you can I'll put the website up, so if you wanna check that out later, you should go there. They are facing, like their lives being wiped out because they believe in Christianity, and it is a serious threat on them. Did you know that, Pastor Jeff told me this after the first service, that Mount Horeb has given almost a million dollars to the Persecution Project by helping build wells there for those people that have been displaced? We've been giving for over the last 20 years. You know why? One man in the church, Ray Edmonds, kept bringing it to prayer breakfast every week about these believers there that were being persecuted and the need for them to have wells as they were being scattered. And people got set on fire for it and we have given over a million dollars. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? I mean, I wonder how many of us would be willing to stay faithful in the face of that type of persecution. 
How many of us but would be willing to continue to stand strong and say, yes, I, I do believe that, even in the face of that type of threat? It would be a defining moment for every one of us. I mean, the, the reality is here in the, in the USA, we have it fairly easy when it comes to talking about this kind of stuff and what we have to, to deal with, of course. And we should be grateful for that, right? It's not, it's not to shame that. I'm grateful that we have that freedom. I don't think anybody came here this morning in the parking lot and was like thinking they were gonna get snatched and thrown into prison, right? That was not a threat that we even, that probably even crossed our mind as we came onto the property today. I've been in another, another country before where when I went to the, to the church service, there were people with armed guards and guns right outside because the threat was so great. It's a very unsettling and scary feeling. We do, of course, face pressures in our culture. We face kind of the, the intensity of like, oh, do I really want to stand up for what I feel like God says about this? Because this, kind of, this is kind of a lot of pressure. We face secularism today. And I remember, you know, I've been in church ministry full-time for almost 20 years. And I remember the day when people would be like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I work at a church. Oh, cool. Great conversation starter, you know. What do you do? Back and forth. It kind of felt so culturally accepted. And uh, the last five years or so, I have felt there'd be way more tension in a room where someone asked me what I do when I'm not here. I was recently talking to someone I didn't really know, and they just said, hey, what do you do for a job? And I just said, oh, I work at a church. Interesting. That's all I got. And I'm thinking, do they want to know what I do at the church? I thought this at least would have been a conversation starter. It was like, Interesting. That's where the competition ended because I was like, I don't even know what to say. I feel like they are not approving of, my, of what I do. In little ways, maybe you start, start to get that pressure and that feeling that, oh, maybe people are kind of starting to associate me with dot, dot, dot when I'm trying to be faithful to what I feel like God's called me to do in my life. The persecution defined the church, not destroyed it. And I believe if it would break out here today in an intense way or in our future, it would define who's really all into this. The chapters move ahead and some incredible things happen. And like I said, the, the conversion of Paul was amazing. Some things happen with Peter. And we skip ahead to chapter 11 so you can turn there. And this is what I love is the way this, this says this. It's, a, it's all these things have been happening. God's been at work and Peter's life and Cornelius and Paul, and he's been doing all these things. And then it just starts with, meanwhile, like, meanwhile, this is what's actually going on with the people who were scattered. It says this in 11 verse 19. It says, meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Powerful. You see, persecution does not hinder the work of God. It often hurries it. Persecution does not hinder the work of God. It often hurries it. We see the gathered church in Jerusalem become the scattered church among the nations. At the very beginning of Acts, Acts 1-8, what did, what did Jesus say? 
You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And isn't it amazing that God used the persecution to actually bring about those witnesses scattered in those very regions? God can work through anything. One of the cities that's highlighted that is so important, I wish I had more time to go into it, but it talks about Antioch of Syria, and that's where you see the large number of people converted. Do you know what was so special about Antioch? It was located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. At the time, it had a population of over 500,000. It was the third largest city in the empire, only behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a center for the Roman Empire. And what we see happening in those verses right here because of the persecution and in all the verses following that talk about this is the first church plant amongst non-Jewish people. The first church plant happens here in Antioch because the persecution of the Christians and they were driven out and it happens right here. Also fun fact, in this city was the first time the word Christian was ever used at Antioch, and that's where the word took off. Before it was followers of the way, believers. It's really, really interesting to think about that. And it was because of the pressure that was put on these Christians to go there that the message went there to these people. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I am uh, not much of a cook, and I have not spent a ton of time in the kitchen. Uh, I am... uh, I've learned my way around enough, but I'm an eater, not a cooker. But in my limited, limited experience, I have, I have learned this, the difference between a crock pot and an instant pot, okay? An instant pot, you could cut that thing on in the morning, put a little bit of roast beef in there, pour you a can of soup. I do it the real Southern way, you know, like French onion soup, carrots, some potatoes. You can go to work. I think it's cooking all day long, And your meal is done. It's ready when you get home. It may have taken X amount of hours to do it, but guess what? The Instant Pot, oh man. You put some stuff in there, you crank that thing up, in just a few minutes, you have a full-blown meal. And the only difference is the added pressure and the heat and the intensity because of the added pressure. It will give you quick results. You see, the persecution brought intense pressure to these believers, don't you think, don't you think when the church was running for their lives and ending up in different cities all over the region that it felt like chaos? I mean, just picture that. It probably felt like chaos. Don't you think it felt like things were maybe falling apart? Like, what's happening here? We're being driven out. We're, oh, my friend ended up in this city. I, I'm here. What, what's happening? But what do they keep doing? They stayed faithful to telling people about Jesus. And here's what's amazing. As the dust settled, in the middle of the chaos, as they're scurrying and ending up all over the region of different cities, God brought order to the chaos. The gospel was being preached. New churches were being planted in new cities in the wake of it all. God was moving and he was allowing his witnesses to be represented scattered through Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now for us, have you ever felt the chaos of life? Have you ever felt like things were actually falling apart? 
might God be ordering something beautiful right in the middle of it? Right in the middle of the mess, right in the middle of the chaos? Might God be ordering things for good in spite of the difficulties and hardships that we're facing? I mean, do we really believe, like we were saying earlier, that God can turn graves into gardens, seas into highways, bones into armies, then maybe we need to believe that he can turn a great wave of persecution into a great wave of faith. See, one of the things I think we can all learn, some of people are like, I don't know how to, what are we learning from? This is so intense what they were going through. One of the things I think we can learn is I bet the early believers found out what they were made of when the pressure was on. I bet they found out what they were made of. When, when hardships are pressing down and what comes spilling out of their life was faith. Can you imagine? It's like, oh man, this is hard. I, I kind of, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Oh, but I heard about so-and-so and they're, they're still telling people about, gee, they're standing strong. Well, that, that emboldens me to continue on. I mean, have you ever met somebody who was in the middle of the most difficult hardship you've ever imagined? And all the pressure on their life that's on them, and it shows you what you're made of. And what comes spilling out of their life is faith. You're like, wow. When faith begins to pour out of someone's life, when it's been the hardships that are on them, sometimes that's how all of us find out what we're made of, trusting that God can use anything to keep us moving forward and staying faithful to him. So maybe you should think this morning, maybe ask yourself this question, how might God be at work today in your life through a hardship? How might God be at work today in your life through a hardship? How is God preparing your faith for you to be able to withstand anything? How is he preparing you and your faith to be able to withstand whatever may come our way one day with what we face here as a church and standing bold for Christ or just in our own life and the hardships that we face? What pressures could God want to use in you and through you to continue to allow you to share of his saving love? Maybe there are people in here today that, that find themselves in a new job or a new school or a new neighborhood, or maybe you find yourself starting over because of some sort of relational break that you did not plan on. Maybe you find yourself in a therapist's office working through some hurts and some pains and some traumas. Maybe you find yourself at the hospital getting treatments for something and you're like, this was never part of my plan. This was never a part of my plan. Why am I here? Why am I going through this? I was recently talking to a friend and I was just like, I need the Lord to explain to me why he had me take this turn and then this happened and then this turn. And they, in their wisdom, were like, well, maybe it's because God wants you to, you know, minister to somebody on that path. And I was like, mm-mm. I wish he could have just let me keep going with the plan I had, if I'm honest. But isn't that true? That God often uses the left turns, the unexpected route, path, to be the very thing that sets us up on the path of someone we never would have encountered before. And through our faith, when the pressure is on, what comes spilling out of us, if we are truly 
truly believers, what comes spilling out of us is a faith and a confidence and a trust in God that he's got you on this path. It was unexpected. And even in this left turn and this difficult situation, I'm gonna be faithful and maybe out of my life, people around me will experience that faith and experience the hope that they can have in Jesus as well. Because the pressures in your life will not hinder the work of God, but it may hurry it along to people that you never would have encountered before. One of my favorite verses I wanna read for us as we step into communion here in a moment is in 2 Corinthians. And what's powerful about this is the person who wrote this years later after this great persecution that we just talked about is the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor and who was transformed. And he says this to God's people, and I want this to just something that washes over you today as you listen. He says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. You see, the persecution that we see in Acts set out to dismember the body. But at the communion table, we come today and we remember the body. It's set to break them apart, to scatter them, to destroy them. But they remembered the body that was broken for them, the same body that was broken for us so that we may have life. The one who suffered in our place, any amount of suffering we experience in this life will not have the final say as we continue to be faithful to Jesus and what he's called us to. We come today on Worldwide Communion Sunday, which makes me think there are Christians all over the globe today, even the ones facing persecution, and we come united with them as the scattered church of God across the globe, faithful witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, sharing the good news. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are just so blessed to be able to even read these powerful stories and testimonies of these early Christians, the ones who were committed in the face of death. God, may each one of us decide today, may this be a defining moment for each one of us to be faithful to what you've called us to, to stand strong in the midst of whatever hardships and difficulties and sufferings may come our way and that we would trust you in the middle of it as you are the one who's given us the grace in your broken body and resurrected body, given us the hope to continue on. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Thank you, Grace Marie. We've heard revelation today through the speaking of God's word. I'm gonna ask those who are gonna help us serve today if you would come forward and we're gonna to prepare to receive Holy Communion. On this Worldwide Communion Sunday, we celebrate communion with the body of Christ all over the world. So as you come to receive this sacrament, would you not just receive it for yourself, but would you be mindful 
that there are Christians that are in prison right now for their faith. There are Christians that are estranged from their families because of their faith. We also at Mount Horb have an open table. That means that you don't have to be a member of this church to receive communion. You've got to be just want to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior to receive communion. So Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Would you pray this prayer of confession and preparation for remembering what Christ has done for you? Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. And we have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now take a moment and in your heart ratify that prayer. Jesus said if, if we confess our sins, or First John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So church, hear the good news that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Church, will you respond, please? In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. God so loved the world that he gave the world his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to be a sacrifice. His body was broken on the cross. His blood was shed on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven. On that last night with his disciples before he was to be arrested, he held the bread before them and said, this bread is my body that is broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember what I have done for you. In the same way, he held the cup before them and said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Whenever you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ that washes away your sins. So prepare to come and receive this sacrament. There's going to be a diagram up on the screen that will tell you which station you go to. We're going to serve our servers and prepare you to receive this meal.